This is the Only Human podcast from Community Radio 4ZZZ out of Brisbane, Australia. Today on the program, I'm joined by Annabelle Oxley, disability activist and trainer for Queensland Council of LGBTI Health. Hi, Annabelle. Thank you so much for joining me and the listeners of Only Human. Could you tell us how would you describe your approach to activism? I think the best way to describe my approach to activism is trying to translate um, uh, disability rights and disability justice into actionable forms for organizations. For example, very often in my work, you find that a lot of organizations want to be LGBTI and or disability friendly. But, but very often there isn't a lot of information on how they can apply these concepts to the to their organization. So very often it's about translating the concepts of disability justice into that actionable form for them. Yeah. And tell me, how would you describe your own personal approach to activism? Um, uh, I, I personally w- would describe my approach as a very relaxed and targeted approach. I, because of my disabilities, don't have a lot of energy for consistent campaigning. But what I do try to do is focus my energy in on one specific target and sort of work work with that and and communities to build a knowledge base to tackle that problem. Do you use social media as an activist? I guess I would say I use social media a lot. Social media can tend to be a double-edged sword when it comes to activism because there's a lot of social pressure for perfection in the activist space. But I find that social media tends to be a good way of connecting, particularly for the disabled community. It's a way of finding community. um, And I'd like to touch on accessibility a little later on. Uh, Would you say that there are issues that you're advocating for that are typically left out of the conversation? I think a lot of a lot of my work, particularly with QC, but also in general, has been around trying to make disability service providers and, and disability spaces in general more LGBT friendly. Because very often the LGBT space has this mold of what the ideal member of the community can look like. And that changes a lot depending on where you are. But I find that mold can be very restrictive in terms of how it allows people to change and have different life experiences or different levels of accessibility. So a a lot of what I do is to challenge that. Yeah. 
on that note, would you make a comment about the inclusivity and accessibility of queer spaces in general? Um, it varies a lot from space to space, but if we're talking generally, there isn't a great deal of disability awareness in the L in many LGBT spaces. And there are good reasons for that to an extent. We have often created our spaces with the goal of keeping them safe and somewhat separate to prevent people being outed or, or confrontations with homophobic groups. But a lot of that design tends to lend itself to inaccessibility. And between that and the general nature of a lot of Australian cities to be very stead historical buildings, we haven't got that that accessible space. And so because of that, we haven't had disability culture and disability justice permeating our LG our LGBT spaces in the way that they've been able to permeate other other spaces. And as a result, I feel the LGBT community has a lot to gain from the disabled community in that sense. Absolutely. Um, I also understand that you're a writer. Um, what sort of themes do you write about? Uh, well, uh, when I write, which I don't write as often as I like, I like to cover the topics of intersectionality, cover the topics of of representation in media, because as an avid reader and consumer of media and pop culture myself, it's been interesting to watch over the last, I'm going to say decade to decade and a half, where the standard mold of what LGBT representation is and what disability representation is has changed. And I think it's important to talk about those changes and to talk about how those changes affect us and to talk about things like how the day-to-day -day life of intersectional disability existence works. Because it's very often that those intersections aren't seen or aren't talked about. You mentioned that you're an avid consumer of um, pop culture. Could we talk a little about media representation? Would you say that over the, the last few years there's been any progress with the representation of disability and or queer stories within media? I'd say queer stories, there's definitely more of them. I think that queers trying to grade the, the accuracy of representation is difficult. But if I was going to put it put it in a specific way, I'd say we are talking about excuse me, those stories. However, the stories we talk about and the people we focus on all tend to focus on a specific mold and that and this is true of disabilities as well 
you've got something, for example, like Love on the Spectrum, which is a great show for the purposes of education about neurodivergence, but the ways that it portrays that we lean into a lot of negative stereotypes about disabled people overcoming their disabilities. Yeah. With a lot of a, a lot of queer stories, we're representing our our trauma, for example, but there's very little about our day to day lives. So, when you have people seeing the trauma, but then not seeing people living with the aftermath, you've got you've got to wonder whether you're showing people a accurate and healthy way of being because the trauma the trauma and the struggles are are important but showing do you think one way of uh encapsulating that would be talking about queer and disabled joy yes i feel like we very often don't center our own joy like very often and this is true in activist spaces and a lot of disability spaces and a lot of LGBT spaces. We center our struggles because we need to, to fight for the things we need, but we need to depict those moments of joy and acceptance and day-to-day -day living that just exemplify how most people live their lives. Because when we don't, we're not setting a good example for the younger generation coming up because while it is true that they need to see, see these struggles, very often it leaves them with a negative depiction of what our lives are like. And as you would know, both of those communities can have a lot of joy and a lot of wholesome experiences within them. And a lot of people don't get to see that. That's true. I'm just going to check on the audio. Sorry, Annabelle, I can edit this out at the end because I figured that it's better to get at least part of it. Um, Zoom does a recording, but there's this other thing called um, Audacity. And I wanted to have uh, both of them. So don't worry, I can... Um, make an edit of this at the end. Uh, it's all good. Okay, let's see if this is um, going to record us. So I have some more questions. Um, I uh, was wondering if you could tell us about your experience of um, going up on stage uh, at the powerhouse and uh, participating in queer stories. Um, I'd honestly say that was one of the most nerve-wracking but empowering experiences I've ever had. The Powerhouse, as a venue, was surprisingly accessible and Maeve Marsden and the team of Queer Stories were incredibly, incredibly accommodating and accessible. Uh, they 
and they're a lovely team. But as someone with cerebral palsy, I've had a lot of issues with learning how to pace my voice in a public speaking setting. So for me, it was very empowering to be able to figure out how to both share my story, which was a very raw and very potent one, especially then, but even now, and then and then being able to gain some control of, of my voice and through it along the way as well. And I feel like that story resonated with a lot of people. And I was shocked by the amount of people it resonated with. But it, it ended up that basically um, even today when I'm doing my work, I'll, I'll get people from within the queer and disabled intersection be like, I was there when you said when you were spoken queer stories, and I'm like, thank you. And it was just a very powerful experience for me. Yeah. To have that, um, is it public recognition that, uh, or is it uh, a catharsis of telling your story or bit of both? I'd say there's no moment of catharsis. There's no moment of letting go. And there's also an element of knowing the story is out. And I think for a lot of people, that's important. I, I think the very often disabled and queer narratives don't get to be able to, to have that, like, the audience and the audience that they need. But being able to tell that story was very cathartic to me and gave me a way to process it in a way and begin to move past it. And it sounds like you are both an activist and a storyteller and that your activism informs your storytelling and vice versa. Would you say that's correct? Uh, I would say that's correct. Uh, um, For example, I'll talk about my work for a second. What I do is I go to organizations, usually disability specific ones, and I teach them how to put elements of disability justice and and um, LGBT intersection into action. But the way you do that is to put it in a language they understand, to translate the actions of disability, actions of disability justice, of holding space, of respecting boundaries, of consent, into things that people who aren't necessarily part of of those communities can understand. And a lot of the way I do that is through relating, telling stories, relating into the work they do. So when I put a presentation together, there are key points I need to get to. But those interweaving points are incredibly key, I think. 
the ones that tell you, yes, these things are important, but this is why and this is how you put them into action. Do you think uh, that there are um, moments where both homophobia occurs um, in disabled spaces and ableism occurs in uh, queer spaces and this trying to encompass the lived experience of people who, you know, sit at that intersection. That's obviously why your work is, is so powerful. If it's, a, if it's a question that you're comfortable answering, have you come up uh, against any opposition or, you know, difficult people or situations in your in your work? I'd say that when you talk about opposition, that usually implies a direct negative force. And I haven't encountered that, but I have encountered that both sides of the space have preconceived notions about the other side. For example, when we as a community talk about your experience, it usually ends by about 45 in most people's minds. Mostly because historically we've never had that representation of aging that a lot of other communities have. We don't have as many queer elders. We don't have a view of what aging looks like because of the effects of the AIDS pandemic. And, and because of that, a lot of physical difference, a lot of the, a lot of the disabling effects of aging and disabling effects in general confront a lot of the queer community. And inversely, when you're dealing with disabled spaces, a lot of the people who you work with desperately want to help their clients. But in helping them, they also want to protect them from things they feel might be dangerous or outside of a disabled person's scope of understanding. And that's where you have the homophobia because queerness is seen as the dangerous other in that case. So in a lot of my work, it's about deconstructing both of these ideas, saying that yes, queerness isn't a young person's or able-bodied game, and discussing queerness is a matter of accepting that this is a that this is a part of the human existence, and that learning about it is important for both safety and self-acceptance reasons. Mm, absolutely. I have some more questions and I wanted to touch on, um, well, it's a bit of a broad question, but in your activism, your um, personal life and professional work, is there anyone that you draw inspiration from? Um, there's a lot of historical figures. Um, 
I'd say that I, I've drawn a lot of inspiration from the queer crip movement, which is a very, like, subversive, very anti-systems way of looking at disability and demedicalizing it. But one of my strongest influences in the space currently would have to be Robin Eames, who does a lot of a lot of work similar to what I do, but in the New South Wales space. And a lot and a lot of the conversations that you have when you are in those queer group spaces with people like Robin or or Finn or other members of the community a key to understanding the, the broader effects of of disability and the intersections. Yeah. I also thought um, for anybody who doesn't already know, could you uh, explain what demedicalization means? Certainly. Demedicalization is in essence, viewing a disability not as a simple medical effect and all of the issues that a disabled person experiences coming from that, but instead viewing it as an issue of the systems which surround us. For example, I myself am a wheelchair user and living in Brisbane, you have a lot of inaccessible spaces as we touched on before. However, instead of viewing it as the result of me being in a wheelchair, we should view it instead as the result of, of society's inability to cre create accessible solutions. And and you see it a lot in building design, in in the way that certain places, even hospitals, for example, operate. But instead of viewing it as putting the onus on the, on the disabled individual, you need to put the onus on, on the institutions to create those accessible pathways in consultation with them. Yeah. I have uh, one question to add um, and then we might wrap things up. I wanted to ask you, um, for anybody who has not stepped into the activism space yet or they are uh, unfamiliar with uh, politics and things like that but they're wanting to, is there any advice that you'd give to um, people who uh, are queer and disabled? I would say that it begins when you connect with community. Like there's a lot of my there's a lot of minutiae when it comes to certain certain parts of theory or or sectors of the disability community. But essentially the disabled community and the queer community work best when we connect with each other and work in concert. And I feel like 
using social media as we discussed before and then taking that and just learning through osmosis, through reading, through the life experiences of others and using that knowledge to then advocate for the needs which you see in your community is the best first step anyone can take on the road to activism. I thought of one final thing that I wanted to uh, tack on a question. Um, Do you think that mainstream or um, non-disabled activists can do better to include um, people with disabilities who want to participate but feel, um, for whatever reason, excluded or, um, like, like belonging, I guess, it is something that I, I see uh, in various spaces that I also belong to, that people with disabilities just aren't there, they're just not present, and that's obviously for a reason. Personally, I think that a lot of mainstream activism finds itself At a loss when it's when it's attempting to cater to a mainstream audience. And I say this because a lot of mainstream activism tries to put forward the most socially acceptable members of the community to push for the rights that, that they feel they need. And and this has always been a thing, and you can't fault it in theory. But when you have those issues, when you have when we have this activist space, which is almost purely able-bodied, usually white, usually male, usually conventionally attractive people, very often we lose a lot. Of a lot of the important lessons that the disabled community or or communities of color can teach us. And I feel like it's important to not only do better by those communities, but to open yourself up to those communities so that you can have those conversations and that sharing of ideas that you need to get to that more holistic place of learning and activism yeah and I guess uh it's sort of a bit like perhaps uh to backtrack (laughs) maybe a better way of framing it would be that instead of uh disabled activists aiming to put their voices into the mainstream it's more about preserving the radical uh, aspects of the work that we're doing and making sure that it's effective work as opposed to popular work? Is that perhaps a better way of framing uh, it? Yeah. To put it simply, when we say that pride was a right in the queer community, that, it, that doesn't mean we're necessarily arguing for constant rights. What we're arguing for is that we can't sit complacent in the systems that surround us. And that's and the same is true for disabled. We as communities can't sit complacent in the systems and 
work purely within systems and then hope to achieve real meaningful change. We need to be willing to not only stray outside of those systems, but be willing, but be willing to critique those systems and, if necessary, dismantle some of the barriers within those systems to create new ways of thinking. And sometimes that means confronting ableism or homophobia within our own communities. Absolutely. Well, we're slowly running out of time and I I absolutely have um, relished every moment of our conversation. Thank you, Annabelle, um, for joining me today. Um, and uh, we hope hopefully might see you on Only Human um, in the future. You are listening to the Only Human podcast. Only Human is a weekly program on social justice, disability rights, psychology, social research and mental wellness. You can listen in Brisbane on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM and set digital on DAB Plus radios. Love community media? You can support 4ZZZ by subscribing or making a donation at 4ZZZFM.org.au.